literature makes you feel, and it can get you thinking too. But how do you move from signs on a page to thoughts and feelings? And why does fiction sometimes feel more real than the world around us? My name is Karin Kokkonen, and together with my colleagues from the Literature, Cognition and Emotions Project, LC for short, we will discuss these and other questions in the coming weeks. Today's guest is Tuna Selbu, Professor in Comparative Literature at the University of Oslo. Tuna, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me. So you work on what one might describe as the big novels of the 19th century. Anna Karenina, Middlemarch, Bleak House. Um, and these big novels in the way in which you approach them also seem to evoke big feelings in, in readers. Um, what do you think is particular um, to the way in which these 19th century novels treat emotions and feelings? Well, of course, all literature will evoke or can evoke emotions and feelings. But these big novels are, in a way, very accessible in the sense that it's easy to recognize emotions and feelings and how they actually turn feelings as a sort of a general concept into narrated emotions as judgments or declarations of love or link them to so-called realistic persons which we can easily imagine as, as somebody you might meet on the street or might meet in at a party or whatever. And because they are so well plotted and are so dialogic in form and depict various situations where people are embodied in conflicts and also they use the word emotions, feelings, uh, etc. quite a lot. Oh, I mean, the writers do. Um, they are a good way to start at least, also a good way to continue, but they, mm. they, are, um, they are very good at demonstrating how fiction can uh, demonstrate feelings in a way which is analogous to the way we try to understand feelings in persons we meet in real life. That's at least one way of looking at it. So you would say that a novel like, well, let's pick Anna Karenina, makes emotions observable? I think that's a good way of putting it. It also makes emotion complicated mm -hmm. in the sense that it depicts meetings, uh, feelings, situations, people who are confronted uh, in a way which reminds us how extraordinarily difficult it is to understand other people. Mm. And we can, you know, you can read people, so to speak, but you never understand, uh, well, other people always see see you as different from the way you see yourself and also people go through developments or they do not go through developments but they might think of themselves as emotional for instance but in reality they are not or emotions are can be you know full of conflicting uh, mm. sensations and I think Anna Karenina is a very good example of this um, since you mention it Not only Anna, which is the one, the main character, which is maybe easiest to start with, to sympathize with, but also her husband Karenin, whom she leaves. I think that's a very good example of how um, an author like Tolstoy, who's learned from the English realist novel, learned from the French realist or 19th century novel, uh, does it because he does, in a sense, to start with, present us with Karenin as somebody quite despicable and a dry, 
stick somebody you wouldn't want to be married to and you can understand that Anna uh, maybe wants to leave him and you can understand the way she falls in love with this sort of dashing uh, Vronsky but uh, Tolstoy is very good at showing us how there are situations where we actually are forced to try and see it from his side of mm. view. Uh, for instance, there's this scene where she gives birth. She has been unfaithful with Bronsky and she's expecting his child. And uh, Karenin is away and, uh, you know, really wants her dead. And then she's almost dying while she's giving birth and he comes and then Vronsky and Anna are forced to see that Karenin is suddenly this heroic figure mm. and this figure who surprises not only Anna and Vronsky but also himself. He, he comes to love this little girl she's giving birth to. He takes care of it and then it shifts again. So it's not straightforward. It's not like he goes from bad to good and then mm. we have this happy ending, as you know, but uh, it shifts back and forth and you have these sort of subtle nuances all the time and also this self-analysis. Mm. And I can, maybe if I'm allowed to stick with Karenin a bit longer. Oh, I please just, do. Yeah, I just found one. I mean, as far as husbands, I think, <laughs> and Charles Stoy goes... Um, he is, I mean, quite far up the ladder. He is, I agree. I I was trying to find a quote. I'm not going to read a long one, but just a short one. Since we are talking about literature, it could be a good idea mm. to let literature speak. And oh, this is a big novel, of course. It's a fairly early in the novel. And he just thinks that to feel jealous, that jealousy is a despicable feeling. And he sees Anna with Vronsky at his social setting as in one of the saloons there and and he um, in St. Petersburg and, and he thinks, so that's perfectly all right. You know, she's my wife. Why should I feel jealous? That's under my, uh, you know, that that's under me. That's not that's not something I do because he trusted her. Because and he loves her. He loves her, yes. And he told himself that it was necessary to love her because that's something he does sort of because he's married to her as mm -hmm. well. And then suddenly he's forced to revise this. And this is where this kind of novel, and Tolstoy in particular, of course, is very good. So I'm just reading you a little bit and then you can have this as an example. Now, however, although his conviction that jealousy was a despicable feeling and that one should have trust and not be destroyed, he felt that he was standing face to face with something illogical and nonsensical and he did not know what he should do. Alexei Alexandrovich was standing face to face with life, with the possibility of his wife loving someone other than himself. And this seemed to him very nonsensical and incomprehensible because it was life itself. Alexei Alexandrovich had spent his entire life living and working in official spheres, which had had to do with the reflections of life. And every time he had bumped into life itself, he had shied away from it. He was now experiencing a feeling similar to that which would be felt by someone who, calmly crossing a bridge over a precipice, suddenly discovers that this bridge has been taken down, revealing an abyss. This abyss was life itself. While the bridge was the artificial life Alexei Alexandrovich had been leading, 
for the first time conjectures occurred to him about the possibility of his wife falling in love with somebody, and he was horrified by the idea. And I think this is a fantastic passage uh, showing how he's only lived in the reflections of life. He's lived in the official part of life, but now he's face to face with life itself and he doesn't understand his own feeling. And it's very easy to recognize, even though one might not have experienced mm. exactly the same. It's these sort of shifts in sensation is very well conveyed in this image of him walking over this bridge and looking down into the abyss and realizing that for the first time in life, he is actually faced with life. Yeah, and it is not pleasant. It is not pleasant, yeah. as it isn't to be confronted. And it doesn't really have very, yeah, well, it has consequences, but it doesn't necessarily make him a better human being, but it makes him a human being. It makes us understand him better, mm. uh, I think. And I guess that is, or that seems to be a combination of a character's experience. Yeah. Um, which is then also given words or given this image of, mm. of the bridge mm. that, that he has built himself, mm. that mm. won't keep him, that gives not enough stability from the narrator. Mm. I, I agree. And also I think what Tolstoy is very good at and Dickens in another way and uh, George Eliot in another way, yet another way is very good at is to show how you can't put this sort of exact division between between thoughts and emotions, they sort of, they go together and you definitely don't know yourself when you're thinking and when you're feeling and what makes what makes you make that decision and not the other. And, and that all very often happens in this kind of novel in social situations. And, and that's something which attracts me with this, uh, besides this being, you know, good literature, it's, it's this, you sort of invited into this almost like a, social experiment mm. i mean it is a strange world that yeah todd story takes us yeah. into yeah but so does so does uh flaubert so mm. does dickens so does Eliot. it takes us into this in different ways alien worlds i mean of course for me as norwegian not reading russian i was reading this in uh, bartlett's translation now uh it's complete alien world, but you can still relate to it. And and I think the way feelings are mixed and feelings are confronted and feelings are conveyed to the reader and with lots of what you might call sort of cognitive dissonances, it's not like it's harmonic mm. or all explained in nice passages. It's quite often presented as sort of, you have to work on it to under try and understand it. Yeah, there is a problem. There's a problem, yeah. yeah. And there is, I guess, also a way of distancing. Um, so the, the emotions, of course, are something that draws in and that we've experienced ourselves. But then if we go to another novel that we address very briefly, Middlemarch, mm. there is, of course, that famous distancing sentence, but why always Dorothea? Mm -hmm. So what is that, or what do you think is, is this push and pull um, of identifying or distancing um, from characters, is is this something an author might design? Or, well, I think I mean George Eliot is a very, in many ways, philosophical author, and she also writes 
essays and and treatises and, and you know all and she translates German philosophy yes and she, she translates German, difficult German moral the, theological philosophy so yes uh, so I think to a certain extent of course she does design it she wants I mean she sees the novel as um, a good way or a good place to try and discuss these kind of uh, uh, feelings, whether they be moral or otherwise, uh, because it you have this room where you're basically allowed to do quite a lot, and you have this freedom in the novel to to present a lot of different characters. And you were talking about pushing and pulling, which she does, but Tolstoy also does. It's quite interesting because they do a similar thing, the two of them. Like because when this question why always Dorothea is, of course, which you refer to, uh, refers of course to. Dorothea Brooke, who's, who's married to Cosabon, and we who read it, we we sort of more or less, I think, uh, tend to agree with the Middle March society that why on earth should she choose him? He's not an attractive character. And it he turns out not to be after they're married. So we are sort of confirmed in our view, and then they come back again after the honeymoon, and the narrator goes sort of goes on about telling us about how horrible he is, and then you have this sudden intervention, uh, almost like a sort of a moral mm. intervention in the novel, saying, but why always Dorothea? Why not also Cosabon? Even mm. though everybody hates him, he's also a human being. He's also an inner mind, and he's also craving for love and attention. And, and he has that. a dream. And he has a dream, yes. <laughs> he's going to, <laughs> to solve, <laughs> he has, he's going to, to write this enormous oeuvre, uh, the key to all mythologies. And it's a kind of title which always makes my heart bleed because it's what you would tell any PhD student, you know, don't try and write <laughs> the key to all mythologies. <laughs> but, and he fails, of course. And But we are reminded that he's also somebody birth attention and uh, feeling and sympathy, whatever you like to call it. But I think... And I mean, Dorothea sees that. Dorothea sees that. And there is a touching scene where she sees him as a wounded animal. Uh, which is very, very strong. But it's also an, a question whether she succeeds, I mean, George Eliot, in conveying mm. this sympathy to us. Because to a certain extent, yes, we accept it. I'm saying we, I mean, every individual reader will, will experience this, this in, in different ways, I suspect. But but it's still open. It's not like, oh, yes, uh, then she explains uh, via her narrator or whoever that now we suddenly should be fond of Cosabon and we are. It's not that simple. Mm. It's not that straightforward. So she lays it out as a possibility, as Tolstoy does with, yeah. uh, with Karenin. It, they do it in different ways, but it's a similar move. They turn their perspective they, they follow mm. one perspective and then they sh make a shift and they turn the perspective. And they do it via words, but they also do it via gestures and involuntary. It's not always conscious. It's mm. also these small movements, sensations. Uh, it can be blinking of an eye. It can be a sudden blush. It can be that you behave in a way which you haven't planned to do. All this is represented in these social rooms or situations or whatever one might call it. Yeah, you have called it situations of sympathy. Yeah, I like this word situations mm -hmm. because it reminds me that they are 
I think, fundamentally social novels in the sense that they aren't islands floating on their own. In all these novels, there's a social level, which is very strong, and you have individual characters embedded in situations in sort of everyday use of the term with other people, but also in bigger collective uh, structures, which you might also call a kind of situation. And it's it's also embedded in processes so that they sort of try out new ways of dealing with each other and finding ways of action within bigger social structures. So they are sort of um, composed of situations mm-hmm. in every sense of the word, I think. All, many of these big novels, and I think maybe it has to do with the fact that it's probably Balzac who said it the best, that, you know, he says he wants to write, he says in the, the preface to Comédie Imen that he, La Comédie that he wants to, to present us with the histoire de Meur, uh, with a sort of a history of manners, individual manners, and and that he wants to to write the history that the historians ha, have neglected. Uh, mm-hmm. And by that, I think he means that he wants to go down to the sort of street level and, and look at the daily histories connected mm-hmm. to individuals, which is not part of the general's history or the, the bigger. Today, maybe we could call it the Microhistory, probably the historians would call it today. That kind yeah. of yeah. And I mean, he is, especially Balzac. Mm. I think is is someone who is very systematic. Mm. Um, you were talking a little bit earlier, I think, with respect to George Eliot about the sort of experimental. You can try out different perspectives, and it seems to me that someone like Balzac, I mean, he really had the ambition to map all layers of French society mm. in in mm. the mid nineteenth century. I mean, if we even within an individual novel like Père Goriot, mm. where you have the boarding house mm. and people are living on different floors. Mm. It's fantastic. And the further Goriot moves up, the deeper he sinks. So yeah, you have Because this, the flats get cheaper. Yes, they get cheaper <laughs> towards the top. Uh, yes, and he is a brilliant example of somebody who had, had this ambition as well to map a certain phase of French history. So uh, La, La Comédie Humaine is an enormous amount of books and tales and uh, novels and um, showing us uh, French uh, society at a certain age. Uh, so it's quite extraordinary. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's sociological in a way, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's social. So I always have uh, been playing a bit with these words because, of course, all novels and all literature is historical and sociological. And But I think what I think is so uh, typical of Balzac, and also I can say the same, I think, of Tolstoy and Eliot and others and Dickens, is so literary anthropology. Mm-hmm. I think it's uh, because it, you see history through the humans, through the human, human experience. Action, yeah, through experience, yeah. yes. Through, and through, as what you started with, through feelings and emotions and and uh, whatever you like to call it. I mean, you can talk about feeling as in sort of overall category, and then you have registered emotions, like when you actually have them presented as something which is conscious. But feelings, emotions, affects all these sort of sensations are there. And I think also, at least within the English uh, novel, Eliot and Dickens, in in different ways again, are responding to specific uh, mm. social 
situations. And for Dickens, the novel was a way of trying to reform the British society. And a very good example of how he presents um, emotions in a way which hadn't been presented before. So that when he presents somebody who's poor, he doesn't present it in a way which says that this person is poor because that's his own fault, that he he's not able to work because he's silly or he he's lazy, or he actually presents as something social. Mm. You might well it's call it... It's a systemic problem. It's a systemic problem, and you might well call it uh, sentimental, which, of course, it also is. But it's sentimental in its sort of fundamental way. It's, it's linked to sentiments and to emotions. And in that way, it's quite interesting how... Dickens, in this case, responds to thoughts which comes later on a sociological level or a psychological level. So quite often these writers are quite early mm-hmm. in analysing society in a way which you see in other disciplines as well, of course, but later on. So they have sort of uh, paved the way for discussions which we can recognise in later sociology or psychology or whatever. And I think that's what Raymond Williams thinks about when he, in a very complicated little article which called Structures of Feelings, uh, feeling which, when he sort of points to that, they these feelings, they aren't registered yet on a collective level. They start, it's quite interesting. The sort of the ground rumbling. Yeah, the ground rumbling, yes. And he uses, I think Dickens is one of his examples that, you know, that the way Dickens presents poverty or or social change hasn't yet been accepted on an overall level, but it's coming. Going back to something that you said earlier on about um, George Eliot having this interest in morality, mm. I mean, that, that I think is also something that quite clearly applies to Dickens. Mm. Where do you see the link between that interest in, well, let's call it a moral message and and the emotional impact of those novels yeah. i wish i could i uh, wish i could give you a straightforward <laughs> answer to that or maybe yeah. i mean it's the way in which we've mm. talked about the rumbling in the ground so mm. far it it seems to be quite value free let's put it mm. that way whereas i mean there, there clearly are values attached to what dickens mm. and mm. um mm. Eliot are doing uh, i think One of the interesting things is that morality, uh, religion, beliefs, uh, uh, it's all there. But it has to be fought out. It has to be be, uh, lived through. And there's no identity between moral situations on the one hand or moral feelings and uh, ethical behavior on the other hand. You have characters in... Uh, both Dickens and uh, Eliot, who are so-called moral people in the eyes of society and preaching virtues and good behavior, and then they are revealed to be quite immoral people in other situations. And again, not necessarily because they are evil, but because they're human. There's this, uh, of course, this famous Bolstrode in uh, Middlemarch, who has tricked his way uh, to money and done all sorts of bad deeds. But he isn't necessarily an evil person, but he's sort of caught in this net of his own own actions. And then when life 
catches up with him and he is revealed to be a villain in some ways, in some ways he is. There's this fantastic scene between him and his wife. Mm. And he's always looked down on his wife or she has been admiring him. She's been this sort of humble, grey character. And then she rises up to the situation and, you know, and he is completely humbled and she says, look at me, Nicola. It's a fantastic scene. And it's a fantastic scene because hardly anything is said. It's something at the end of that paragraph. I don't have it uh, sort of word by word now, but she can't force him to confess. He doesn't dare to confess, but they're looking at each other. And that scene is hardly any words. It's only gestures and mm, bodies bodies, and, uh, and eyes looking at each other. And of course, that's also a way of saving their marriage, because if everything is said, then it's probably impossible for I them think. to live on together. But they're both, I mean, again, you have this shift in power where he sinks, she rises up to the situation and sort of saves him in some ways uh, by being the more proper moral person. But I think that's something these novels are very good at, sort of complicate ethical questions and then always base them not in um, abstract principles, mm. but in concrete actions. And of course, George Eliot, who's sometimes uh, accused of being the most abstract thinker or that she's too much of a head and that's because you know I don't think she would have been accused of that if she'd been a male writer but you know this whole thing about you know um, and I mean she chooses the name George she chooses the name George yes that's true yeah <laughs> but she I think both Daniel Deronda and Middlemarch and all all her all the things I've read by her mm. Everything which is close to a moral principle and a sort of a doctrine, and you do have these sentences there, and you do have a quite authoritative narrator and almost like a, you know the author figure mm. sort of speaking through. Uh, quite different from Austen. Completely for different from Austen, for instance. Yes, uh, but even so, they lose they lose value when they're not linked to concrete mm. actions and concrete experiences and concrete uh, feelings. That's when they live and grow and become uh, yeah important. So these big feelings that we started with actually also need, um, yeah, let's call them moral aspects or, yeah, reflection. I think so. I, I don't see a contradiction between feelings and reflection and analysis. You can say Eliot is more of an analytical, openly analytical writer than Dickens, for instance, but she's no less emotional it's just presented in a different way. And I think reflection, thinking, analysis and emotion, they go hand in hand. And, and I think it's very important, and I think we talked about that before, that when it so happens that you don't know whether something is the fruit of your imagination or your reflection or your spontaneous feeling. And that seems to be a cognitive process yeah. in and of itself it go, yeah. you said something about push and pull it, mm. it goes sort of it's sort of intertwined uh, as a, yes you might well call it a cognitive process it's it's sort of embedded in each other yeah as sort of multi-dimensional <laughs> yeah, you might well say so yeah. <laughs> or dialogic to dialogic yes that. yeah yeah and of course there is a lot of dialogue in these novels as well 
They're very good at writing dialogue, which is a very difficult thing to do. They were also very good at ironic dialogue, so playing at these different layers of, of meaning. So we are, you might well say that these, as I, I know I already have said, that these are accessible to another mm. extent than, for instance, Proust or Virginia Woolf or, or the classical, classic modernist novel. But... What is very impressive is you, they are so well plotted. At the same time, the sentences are so rich and so subtle. And I guess in order to bring the plot to full effect, I mean, if we think of all the couples in mm. Anna Karenina, mm. Karenin and Karenina are not the only couple. No, no, you have Levin and Kitty and, and they are... Conf and Stepan and Dolly. Of course, of course, yes. Yeah. So they look, I mean... And these couples, of course, they form parts of the plot and they form the story and the story world and uh, and and the whole sort of fictional um, world we meet here. But they also give us a lot of food for thought. So that I think that's very interesting. And I guess that might um, help us account for why, you know, we can still have a very engaged conversation mm. about a novel on Russian aristocrats. <laughs> and why should, on what earth should we be so interested in them? But we are. So. <laughs> Do you think um, we still have novels like that today? Or is this a tradition which, I mean, we've talked about the ways in which this is rooted in particular concerns mm. of the 19th century, both literary and social and moral. Is this something that is still being written today or is there a different? Of course, there are. it's good literature today, but... I didn't ask about good literature. No, I know you didn't. I know you didn't. Um, I don't know, really. I mean, it's done differently. I think a big realistic novel like this is a form which is very strongly linked to the 19th century and it survived the 19th century to an extraordinary extent. But it doesn't have the same impact, I think, today. I would I would say if I was going to read sort of big novels today, which really makes an emotional impact and also is linked to a political context or a social context, I would go to, for instance, Alice Smith's quartet, seasonal, seasonal quartet. Yes, that I think is fantastic. A fantastic example of a novel which is able to, or four novels which is able to do some of the same things, but doing it in a completely different way, answering to she's answering to her time and to the way we live now. <laughs> I mean, it's almost written in real time, isn't it? It's almost written in real time, and I think she succeeds. Uh, but she does it, and I think that's also one of the strengths, in a completely different way from the 19th century novel, and also in a very different way from the 20th century modernist novel. So it's a mixture of different forms, which is sort of embedded in her world. Um, and that's, of course, it's it's hard to do, and it's very impressive, I think. But I think she's a very good example of somebody who manages to make these very moving confrontations mm. between persons on an individual level or between two people, for instance, and then lifting it up so that you never forget the bigger perspective. So, And, of course, there are other examples, but that's the best example I can think mm. of. So this is your recommendation for our listeners? Yes, maybe it is. Uh, yes, I would love to recommend uh, Alice Smith's, uh, well, everything by her, but especially the seasonal quartet. Mm. 
or you can read, reread uh, Anna Karenina or Bleak House uh, or Middlemarch or Daniel Deronda, which is a novel which in Norway, at least, is almost unknown. It's not translated and I haven't met many people outside sort of literary circle or people interested in the 19th century novel who has read Daniel Deronda. And it's such a strong testimony to Jewish history, for instance, or to the question of of race, ethnicity, <laughs> and all that. So that Which are still... We are struggling with this struggling, question every yeah. day, yes. Yeah. Well, Daniel Deronda first. Then... Daniel Deronda first, and then Ali Smith. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for this excellent conversation on big feelings, situations of sympathy, um, the Victorian novel and the novel today, Tuna. Thank you, Karin. And thanks to everyone for listening to the LC podcast. <laughs>